Hello and welcome to Talking Capital. I'm Ian Barnard, CEO of Capital Generation Partners, and I'm here with our Chief Investment Officer, Robert Sears, to answer three questions posed by our clients in recent weeks. For those who don't know us already, CapGen is a private investment office for families with capital. We are go-anywhere investors, so in the course of these episodes, you can expect us to cover any question across any asset class in any region of the world, from bricks and mortar to portfolio derivatives. In summary, this is a podcast where we answer the questions playing on the minds of sophisticated long-term investors. Do subscribe if that sounds up your street, and you'll enjoy two episodes a month of Talking Capital. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2024, which has started out in markets, at least anyway, with something of a groan. So perhaps, Robert, we can kick off by my asking you, what's caused the market to have a bit of a groan at the start of this year? Well, uh, I suppose it's the Happy New Year, unfortunately, is is a lot of it does turn around about the calendar. Um, although, in reality, conditions should just be continuous. Um Human behavior is what is behind a lot of market moves. It is, it is a, um, uh, the market is a response to what humans think and humans respond to the calendar. And so we saw a big run up in prices towards the end of last year and optimism really went a bit too far. Um, now, it's very early days in this year to sort of talk about a few, few trading days of the year, but that's often what happens. You've a lot of optimism suddenly coming to the new year, the realization maybe we took things a bit too far. And I think that's really behind um, uh, a lot. A lot of what we're we're seeing at the moment really is that question: is are markets priced to perfection? Is so much good news put in the price that actually any disappointment can see a negative response? And to give one example of the first week uh, would be Apple. So uh, Apple, one of the the magnificent seven that was uh, behind most of the market moves for the first part of last year, slightly disappointing potential news on sales looking to the future and the share price trades off about five percent in the first week and that's that's the problem the vulnerability of of sort of a a big run-up into prices often sees a response but we shouldn't read too much into it so far because it is obviously very short term so a lot a lot more of it is noise than the reality but but that looks to be the story of the rest of the year is really the problem is what what's priced in what's expected in terms of the Fed coming to save the day and cut rates at least five times in the year versus what actually may play out. And that that's, as we've talked about, this sort of reflective dance between what's expected and then what actually happens is what we're going to continue to see, likely to see for the um, for the coming period of time. And what, what lies immediately ahead of us, Robert, in terms of data releases? So we're, we're a bit into the year. We've had some uh, some data and some uh, some information out there. Is there anything, and you mentioned the slight disappointment faced by Apple, are there any data releases in the coming days and weeks that are going to give us a clear steer on what lies ahead? Well, again, I think uh, look, look at what happened in the last week and this week is very, very instructive. So last week, if we're considering the usual response or, or data release that um, most market participants think is the, the main one of the month, certainly it's been for the last 20 or 30 years, has been non-farm payrolls. That's the one that gets all the headlines. And sure enough, last week, that was behind some of the um, the moves we've seen in markets. And so, so I suppose what is, what is really important, what are participants trying to work out is, is the US economy slowing that's going to then lead to the Fed cutting rates or is growth actually pretty good? So I think growth is the key question. And the data releases that tell you what's happening 
um, are therefore the most important. So labor market, we see non-farm payrolls, that was pretty important. Um, unfortunately, it's quite a volatile number. So I think that's what we should remember. So the number surprised people slightly to the upside, but you always have to look. The actual revisions for the previous months were actually down. Problem is the data itself a month later, actually the true picture gets um, a little bit distorted. So although on the headline, it looks like the labor market was pretty buoyant, under the surface, actually, a lot of those pay, um, gain in employment was actually due to government jobs. Um, and a lot of it, potentially, some of it could be marked um, marked down as well. And when we're looking at temporary employment, that's actually already in a downward trend. And the other important piece of data that I think came out on uh, at the end of last week was in, in relation to the participation rate. So this is the big, another big problem is, yes, wages were actually still pretty strong, but the participation rate was dropping. Um, now, that's, that's not necessarily um, a, a good signal. Now, it could, it could be behind a number of different factors, one of which is there's a, a surge in, in um, sort of foreign migrant labor coming into the US. So the level of migration, um, a lot of it illegal in the last year, has been pretty high. And that's, again, distorting the numbers a bit. Now, it's all good news, bad news on growth, I suppose. So that's why you're, you're looking at it. And the other data point that was looked at was ISM services um, number was pretty weak. So on the one hand, labor market looks strong, but then the same day actually is the economy actually starting to weaken. And that's that's a bit of that interplay. Um, but I think looking at this week, and again, what, what's different now as opposed to maybe the last 20 years where it was mainly about employment and growth is inflation is the other key driver that is behind a lot of the focus. So actually now the monthly CPI prints um, are, are very important and, and the, the data that points to the um, supply side. So this week, that's going to be a bit of a key focus is, is inflation sticky or not? And that leads to the question. And unfortunately, this is a bit of the problem is because the news, the good news is priced in um, so well, if the economy is growing better than expected, actually, that's a bad thing in the end, because it means we're going to have higher rates than are priced into the market. So that's where the market is vulnerable to stickier inflation. But on the other side, if growth is actually weakening, as maybe the ISM number was suggesting, yes, the Fed maybe will come in with, with cutting rates. It might not be as quick as, um, as expected, but actually that's not good for revenues. So I think those are the two key parts. A lot of the data is to try and say, are we heading to recession or is inflation stickier? And what does that mean for monetary policy? I think that's the key. Those are the key questions that every data point that's coming in is really market participants are trying to work out. And I should say, which I think we'll touch on a bit later, uh, unfortunately, the world is even more complex than that. I think that's the key driver behind markets, and we shouldn't lose our focus. It is about the economy in the end of the day. But the risk of when you're at this point where actually economic data is a bit sensitive to, to move in both directions, um, shocks can really become a problem. And this year is a potential year for a lot of shocks. When we look at geopolitical risk um, uh, in particular, there's more than half of the world's population is going to vote this year. There's a tremendous amount of potential risk as well as conflicts. So you, you, we've talked, Robert, about this, this reflexive dance and good news being bad news and bad news being good news. And you mentioned there the question of, how sticky inflation will prove to be. And I would note that we've seen Eurozone inflation tick up a bit, in a way not unexpectedly, because it's a sort of very obvious playthrough of changes in energy prices compared to, to base levels. But nevertheless, that downward path of inflation has 
slightly uh, arrested in Europe. Now, the US has been its own story for the last year and been a standout performer. But moving from there, Robert, can you just sort of talk uh, talk more about this balance that's in the market between those who are, well, I suppose all investors are wanting there to be a happy future and also wary about what might lie ahead. And I wonder if you could talk about where you think the balance lies. Who is it? If you or which, which side of that debate is currently holding the ring? Uh, well, I think undoubtedly, although a lot of people are still relatively bearish sentiment on the US economy. So I think when we look at surveys, they, certainly, U.S. consumers and um, uh, business owners are relatively bearish. Um, I think market participants, investors, are pretty bullish, pretty optimistic, and they're optimistic because they they sort of are expecting either of the good scenarios that the economy weakens a little bit but not too much, and the Fed comes in to save the day. Uh, and also, they're pretty um, bullish on the fact that uh, team transitory in terms of inflation that actually the inflation is all a problem of the past, inflation's coming down, and we, we don't have anything to worry about. Now, I think the danger with that is you're priced to perfection on both ways, as we, we talk about. But if we take inflation as one example, yes, as we expected, there was this disinflationary move last year. Um, and that was really actually a response to everybody expected inflation to be transitory. It wasn't, and then it was. But that supply side issues, which were related to COVID, were responsible for a big burst of the inflation and they've been removed. But the problem is they've been removed and now they're starting to build again. And they're building naturally based on the levels of inventory and uh, shipment numbers. So sales down, inventory's going up a bit. And we're starting to see those supply chain pressures rise. And also they're building to some of the geopolitical risks that we talked about in that um, actually we're looking at freight costs of uh, shipping is going up. Um, because of some of the geopolitical risk in the Middle East, as an example. So you've got those potential risks of building of the supply chain pressures. And at the same time, that bullwhip effect, the, we, we think of the Indiana Jones, that bullwhip, COVID still having the distortion um, going on. Actually, that, again, that sort of um, uh, has now played its, played its way out. So we're starting to, to go in the other direction. Um, so I think both of those factors, and also when we look at the labor market in the U.S., Yes, wages coming down a little bit, but they're still too high. They're still above 4%. So while that pressure remains, it's hard to see that uh, the Federal Reserve is going to have enough scope to cut rates as quickly as the market's expecting. So to your point about what's expected, it's expected that we're going to have five rate cuts this year happening pretty soon. And even uh, the noises from the Fed, yes, they may have pivoted and they, they want to cut rates, but it won't be as, as fast as it is priced in and expected at the moment. And one of the challenges that you, you hinted at as well, Robert, which obviously lies ahead for the Federal Reserve, is the extent to which they will feel comfortable making rate changes in the latter half of the year when it might be considered to be interfering or influencing the election. So there is this question about how plausibly can they squeeze five rate well, five rate cuts in between now and the point at which they probably won't be able to make any changes in rates because the the, the election is coming. But I wonder, Robert, if I could just, if, if you could position us. So you've sort of laid out, I think, this tension between within all investors, I suppose, the uh, greed and fear, uh, the, the hope that things are going to end well, but the 
cautionary voices saying, well, maybe they weren't and here are the risks. But I wonder if you could position us. Where, where, where are we on that? And what do we think is most likely to happen? Well, I think that exactly to that point, I think we take a step back. What has happened the last couple of years? We feel very buoyant based on um, last year. But if we look at the last two years, basically the markets are flat over that period of time. So it's a big drop in 2022, big rise in, in 2023, but we're sort of flatlined for a couple of years. And that reflects this actual point in the economic cycle where it is a bit more uncertain. So at the moment, I think there's a lot of certainty or more certainty than there is that we've got the good news ahead. And the reality is it's not even been that in the last couple of years. The average stock, if we look at the equal weighted stocks in the MSCI, is still down about 11% from the start of 2021. So the, the actual experience out there is different to how we feel. I think that's really uh, really important. So what do we do with our expectations? Our expectations of recession are a bit higher than the market's expecting. So therefore, we've got more protection to the downside. And we're comfortable keeping that protection because the risks are higher. At the same same time, it's not all being defense because you still want to make money. And that last year is a good example for, for our portfolios. We may actually made good money last year in a year where things are up. You can still make, um, make some money in the portfolios. Uh, it won't be as much as the equity markets, given the level of protection, but actually you can still participate in the upside. And importantly, although last year was really a story of those seven stocks, when you pull them out, it was a pretty mediocre year for the average stock. And that not in the first six months of last year is unlikely to repeat itself this year. So I think, again, investors need to, to, to bear that, that piece in mind. So I think caution is an important stance to have. But at the same time, that's if we fall into recession, the portfolios are well protected. But the other scenario, and that scenario is probably the most likely, but it's still not more than 50% probability. The other scenarios are actually that the Federal Reserve does cut rates a lot faster than expected. Now, that could be a good news for growth in the short term, but it does release inflation. So the other piece of the portfolio is to make sure your portfolios are protected against that risk, that growth runs hot and inflation runs hot. So that's why we have inflation protection built into our portfolios, which most portfolios are not protected for that environment, the risk of higher inflation. And it's the risk of those periods where stocks and bonds both go down at the same time. We've not been used to that for 30 years. We saw it in 2022. We saw it in the third quarter last year. And we saw it in, in last week in the first week of January. So I think portfolios need to be protected in the environment where stocks and bonds both go down at the same time. But lastly, if the good news does go up and we have that high inflation burst, you want to be exposed to those assets which are cheapest and would benefit most from it. And it won't necessarily be the AI stocks. That was the story of last year. It would be more likely be emerging markets and assets which are um, a bit more cyclical and value stocks. So that's why our parts of our portfolio that we want to benefit from that, that environment, that potential environment for higher growth but higher inflation, we've got pieces of portfolio which will really do well in that environment. All the while, I think, don't take a lot of market risk, just beta, but trying to find focused examples where you can be active because in any environment there are opportunities to make money. Um, so active management at this point in the cycle is really important. So by doing that, you can protect your portfolio against that higher risk of recession than uh, than the market's pricing in, but also participate in the areas where there are already dislocations and already market opportunities. And as you say, Robert, it is important and it is right at the top of our list always to be looking at ways in which we can make money in portfolios for our clients, even if at the portfolio level we 
protect, depending on circumstances, the portfolios against the risks that we see, which the moan, as you describe, are, are pretty elevated. But that's that's the the protection, if you like, that allows us to uh, look for interesting opportunities. So I wonder if you could talk just in much more granular and practical terms about what the research team is working on at the moment. What are some of the themes, ideas, managers, opportunities that they're looking at? So the fir- first example is something that we've already got in the portfolio, but I think is is an important theme. And I think that's where in the world uh, stocks cheap and would actually benefit from the current uh, environment we're talking about. And that area, I think one of the areas most likely is Japan. So I think we've talked about Japan before, but in summary, actually the hidden example is since 2016, Japanese earnings have been going up faster even than the US. Uh, It's not often thought about than that, but actually there's been a positive growth story. The stocks remain cheap um, and there has been real corporate governance reform. So there's a real opportunity for return on equity, which is low there, to rise. So I think that, that provides a fertile opportunity for stock picking. So you have cheap stocks and potential growth in earnings, but at the same time, uh, you have the ability to be activist and to go in to find individual companies where that um, shareholder value can be released. And the last factor is, I think one area which a lot of people agree on, um, it's going to be a rocky ride, but one of the big market mispricings is the Japanese yen is extremely cheap um, against the dollar, about 50%. Um, cheap at this point. And this is a one of these decade-long uh, points, and it's where it's a heart of that tug between uh, what's likely to happen with interest rates. If interest rates are coming down in the US this year, as is expected, and Japan finally increases rates from, from where they're holding it at zero, that could be a big market-moving impact this year, and a lot of capital can repatriate. And we have the sort of psychological factor that Japanese equities are, are now trading back towards the record highs of, of the the end of the 80s. And if that does happen, sorry, just to cut in there, Robert, that does happen with the with the Japanese yen, uh, that all Japanese interest rates that they do, you know, come off their extraordinary lows and therefore become a bit more attractive and draw capital back into Japan, repatri- whether it's repatriation of, you know, um, Japanese has assets held offshore or foreign investors coming in. That's going to be... So you're saying that, you know, the Japanese yen is very cheap vis-a-vis the dollar and, you know, that can resolve itself by, you know, dollar weakening or yen strengthening. But I think if those interest rates go up, this is likely to sort of suck capital in from all sorts and this will just be a yen going up against everything sort of story, won't it? Exactly. And a lot of it can be short covering because the yen is heavily borrowed at the moment because it is the currency which still has uh, rock bottom interest rates. So I think from a number of angles... Invest in Japan, but also the currency could provide a lot of um, potential tailwinds for the years ahead. But now that's one example that we have already. So I think that's a cheap area where there's market opportunities, cheap currency, cheap stocks. I think the next is you look for where there are dislocations within the market. So although we're not entered into a widespread recession at this point, we've seen slowing and potentially recession already in Europe and certainly slowing in China. And there are pockets where that have been most affected by interest rates going up. One example being real estate. So real estate, we've already seen distressed assets um, and pressure on market participants. But this is more broadly um, feed its way through into the corporate side. So we've already seen bankruptcies um, start to rise, which doesn't normally happen unless you are heading into a slowing recession. 
And you don't even need a big recession to have problems for those companies that are most heavily levered. So what one area we've been actively looking at it has been distressed credit. So the spreads haven't widened yet, but it's looking for where the opportunity is going to come. So one area we invested in last year was private manager looking at investing in distressed assets across real estate, corporate um, and asset-backed areas. And this year, we're looking to add more credit exposure to managers that can take advantage of more stress conditions in, in liquid credit environment, particularly on the corporate side. So that's one area we're actually trying to find. Having not had really any credit exposure uh, for, for many years, we're now looking, this is an environment where credit is likely to look very appealing against equity, given equity is already um, potentially expensive. So you can get equity-like returns with more protected downsides. So I think that that's one other appealing area that we've looked at. And I think two more I'll, I'll just give just to um, sort of round up the opportunities. Another area we've been actively looking at is where in the um, equity markets do we want to add more our incremental exposure? And there's two areas we've been researching we're going to add more active management to. One is emerging markets. So to that point I said earlier, in the good environment, once we get through recession, or if we have very supportive monetary policy, you go for the cheap assets, which are going to do better in a higher inflation regime, and that area, and in and an environment of weaker dollar. So better for commodity assets, better for weaker uh, dollar, it's really good environment for emerging markets, which start as a cheap area of the market. And it's an area where you need to be active given this level, high level of geopolitical risk that is out there. So there we've had an extensive search for many years and we've honed in on an active manager who we think can add um, uh, quite a bit of extra value on top. So that's one area where we'll be deploying in um, during the course of this year. And the other area actually is a more growth-oriented uh, area is um, where are their growth assets, which are now cheap, and again, active management can add a lot of value, and you can take advantage of secular growth trends. And that area is biotech and healthcare. And there, that's one of the, the areas of the stock market that's grown the most in the last 10 years, but has the biggest dispersion, and specialist skills can really add um, extra value. So although, we, we again, stock markets feel really buoyant, um, the biotech names are still actually trading at relatively distressed levels still. Um, so that's an area where we, we're doing um, incremental research. So I think those are the broad equity areas. And alongside that, other things we've looked at is where else is there opportunity and spreads of wide? And one area we did last year and we continue to have exposure in is uh, um, uh, ILS, insurance-linked securities. And there, the reinsurance market became distorted. Um, and it's an area where actually we, we added last year and we, we got a 10% return in the last six months or so, in the last six months of the year, in a way that's uncorrelated to markets. So spreads were unusually wide and continue to be so. And I think that's the point of you can add, without taking a lot of market risk, you can find dislocated points of the market, be it equity markets or other markets, where you can add extra return um, for clients, even at this um, point in the cycle. So Japan, distressed credit, stress situations, EM, biotech and healthcare, and then the non-correlated things, in particular you mentioned there, Robert Insurance Linked Securities. I think the other thing I would just um, point to for those who uh, weren't able to listen to it uh, is the uh, special edition of this Talking Capital podcast we did uh, just before Christmas where I talked with Ross Davies, our partner and head of real estate, who looking very much at an individual 
asset level rather than a broad asset class level thinks there is real opportunity now very, very selectively in real estate assets. You've, you've got to pick the right asset in the right situation and value it appropriately. So I would add that very um, specialist area to the list too. So we've talked about the balance of risk and opportunities as the market sees it at the moment. We've talked about um, and you positioned us there, Robert, as, as wanting to maintain a degree of caution, whilst at the same time always looking for opportunities to make money. And you've highlighted those areas on which we're focusing at the moment. We both touched on the bumper election year that we have this year. As you said, many, many, I think a majority of the world's population in some way involved in plebiscites this year. And I suppose. Uh, the big one for for everyone because everyone has a view on what happens in the US is the is the US election more parochially perhaps here in the UK we're like to have one I think the prime minister's hinted at the second half of next year we'll see how that uh, how that plays out in practice but but a lot of elections in a lot of countries and uh, it's a bit of a commonplace but there's probably some truth to it that the political divide is wider than it perhaps was 20 or so years ago. There was a bit more of a universal common ground across left and right, whereas now the divisions between left and right are more marked. And I think the US, again, is a particularly clear example of that. We've talked about, I guess, political, geopolitical risk on these podcasts and Ukraine has been one that we've covered. And then obviously more recently we looked at Israel Hamas or Israel Gaza. So I wonder, Rob, before sort of diving into, okay, what what the risks might be, what's our view on this? Do we think these things matter to markets? Do these uh, electoral cycles and changes in government uh, have an impact? How how do we think about it conceptually? Yeah, I think usually uh, it's the case that... um, they matter less than you think. So I think there's a lot more noise in the short term, most of the time. There are big picture trends which are actually behind a lot of what we're talking about. So why is there this uh, increase in populism, which I think is true, and that's an important trend which really does affect a lot of uh, things. Why is there this? And we look behind it, there's been a widening gulf of inequality, and it's behind the last 30 years as an environment of of falling interest rates. So those big picture trends of demographics, uh, the increase of Chinese workers coming on board, falling inflation have really been the and and the increase in debt around the world. That's the key force that was actually moving the politics and affecting how people vote. So it actually often is that way around. And that's been more uh, what you should look at to navigate how markets are going to respond. And I think when we look ahead, That, unfortunately, is what we've got more of, more populism, more divided electorate, an electorate that has moved to the left in a way, although the parties themselves in many countries have moved to the extreme. So actually, you can sort of be a bit bit in the middle, but actually people are moving more towards redistribution. Um, The median voter is a bit younger in some, or or, uh, is, is moved in the direction that actually they're willing to see more fiscal activism by governments. We've seen that over COVID. We're likely to see more of that into the future. So for an investor, you should be thinking and preparing yourself for increased taxation and uh, sort of headwinds to to growth in a way, and also increased uh, localism 
versus globalism. So a deglobalized world, heightened tension between uh, political spheres. And those are big picture trends which really matter. The actual elections themselves are often hard to call, hard to know the response, and hard to know if you can even judge who's going to win, what the short-term response is going to be. But, and this is where it's important, is we're in this environment where actually the risks are so large, you could actually have one of those events at the extreme which really do shake the ground and change things. And I think if we're thinking as in a long-term capital investor, war, and an example being if you get to war or internal conflict, that's where you really can lose a lot of capital. So it's, it's those extreme moments can actually have a real impact and you do have to prepare portfolios um, ready for, for some of those, those extreme moments. And even if we look at this year, we can't predict conflicts, but any of those conflicts could lead to disruptions within trade and that will have a direct impact on markets in the short term um, or long term in, in, in some cases. So. Um, it, it, it's it's hard to break it's hard to break it down. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it would clearly be a mistake, Robert, for you and I to get too uh, distracted into into politics rather than focusing on politics as they affect markets. But I, I noted what you said about the willingness of the electorate to consider more fiscal activity and, and redistribution, and I, I, I you know, don't demur from that. And yet, I observe the the outlier outcomes such as uh, Millet and Argentina and, you know, who knows the possibility of a, of a Trump presidency where neither of which seem to be particularly redistributive, do they? So, I, you know, if writ large there is a, a a move, a willingness amongst electors to see more, more redistribution, there are also their polar opposites that are looking in a very, very different direction. Well, I'd, I'd sort of take two, two things with that. I think Trump is an example of fiscal activism writ large. And this is the often hidden thing behind uh, American politics is Republicans are about big spending as well now, as well as the Democrats. They might spend on defence, although I don't think that will be the case necessarily in Trump as much, but there will be a lot of fiscal spending. And I suppose that's that's the direction of travel, Democrat or Republican, the fiscal deficit's going to get wider. There will be more spending. It's just who you spend it on. So I think that's that's what we're likely to see. Trump is by no means a small government. So exactly the point there, though, Robert, is exactly is it's it's both part both sides, and we're obviously focus on the US because it's problem. Both sides want to spend more money, and the question is how they spend it and what they spend it on. But then the question is how do they fund it? Because you can have redistribution. Uh, that comes from higher taxation, or you can have redistribution that comes from higher borrowing, which is sort of taxing the future, taxing future generations. And and you're saying that the risk is that both sides will want to engage in fiscal activity, uh, and they'll choose to fund it by taxing the future. Exactly. The the idea that Trump is not going to increase the government debt is just not true. We can just see the government debt, unfortunately, is increasing in both directions. There isn't the will to take on um, the debt burden and the problem. And that, that really is a big long-term problem. And equally, we should say there's been this seismic shift. The Republican Party, particularly under Trump, is not a party of um, big business. It is a party now of the working class. There has been this shift. So it is working class voters that are going to vote Trump in, uh, mainly for social reasons and other reasons. Maybe let's take migration as a, as a big example at the moment. So I think we, we do have these big big shifts, big changes. I think Argentina is a good example of actually <laughs> the problem gets, this is what happens. The problem gets so severe that you do need a bit of a, 
uh, a dose of the other way to try and shake the problem. That will probably happen in the US as well. When, once you get inflation so high and the debt problem so extreme, you do need to take some uh, some extreme dose. Whether it works or not, we won't wait to see. But actually, I think that's that's more a, a counterexample. But it's still an example of populism. And I think that's, that's what we're going to see. It's populism writ large. And that's not a good news. And again, if we take on whoever wins the election, does it mean there's going to be more uh, detente with the Chinese? No, it doesn't. Both parties are, are really against trade and against the Chinese, and we're likely to see more onshoring uh, of economic activity. So I think, unfortunately, that's the big thing you should focus on for the year. And who knows whether it means more or less conflict or it's good or bad in the short term. But I think that that's the thing the elections like the, the sooner ele- the election coming up in Taiwan is pretty important. Unfortunately, when we have populist politicians who are sort of considering things more than the economy, and China's another example, they've moved from considering the economy now to considering actually how can we make ourselves self-sufficient, increase Chinese manufacturing and try and make sure we don't rely on the West. Small uh, actions that nobody really knows are going to happen could lead to a major conflict. And if there were a conflict over Taiwan at the moment, it would grind economic activity to a halt given um, sensitivity to semiconductors. So we all hope it won't happen and it's a low probability. But unfortunately, that's the nature of geopolitical risk at the moment is it is large and we don't know when those extreme events are going to happen. So what do you respond with the portfolios? You don't predict which event will happen, but you make sure your portfolio is robust to do well in those type of examples when they do happen and you protect a portfolio um, in a sensible way. Well, thank you very much. I think if there's a punchline, it is um, more volatility, which is something that's been the theme of these podcasts, as you say, taking Malay as an example in Argentina, when you carry fiscal activism too far and indebtedness gets too high and your currency collapses and inflation goes through the roof, you do have people reaching for what is a clearly very laissez-faire right-wing solution, albeit a a populist. But what that really means is just more swinging from side to side, from one to another, more volatility, more surprises and more of the unexpected. So welcome to 2024. Thank you very much for joining us. Bye-bye. You can subscribe to Talking Capital on all major platforms. Capital Generation Partners, LLP, is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and is registered as an investment advisor by the US Securities and Exchange Commission. This podcast and opinions expressed do not constitute investment advice and do not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or any other investment or product. Nothing said during this podcast should be construed as an invitation or inducement to engage in investment activity. All information and opinions expressed herein are current as of publication are subject to change without notice. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from Capital Generation Partners to the listener. Capital Generation Partners makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or of any of the information contained in this podcast. And any liability, therefore, including in respect to direct or indirect loss, is expressly disclaimed. Please note that the value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. This podcast may not be copied, reproduced, further distributed to any other person or published in whole or in part for any purpose. Further information, including our privacy statement, can be found on our website at www.capitalgenerationpartners.com.